Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Diane Orson, in today for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll preview Cine Studio's 50th anniversary celebration. Two founders of Hartford's beloved art house cinema will be here with stories about their decades, presenting great independent, classic, foreign, and cutting-edge films. But first... That's Ugandan American musician Samite Malondo. We're delighted he's back with us here on Where We Live. Samite combines music and storytelling in his performances, and he'll be presenting a new multimedia piece, The Story of Mutoto at the University of St. Joseph this Saturday. Samite Molondo, thanks for coming in this morning. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by going back a bit. You grew up in Uganda. Uh, When did you start playing music? I started playing music when I was uh, really little, not professionally, but um, when I was a little kid, I would copy other people playing traditional instruments like uh, traditional flute. So I was pretty young, actually. And did you have musicians in your family? My grandfather used to play the wooden flute, and that inspired me to also fall in love with the flute. So you left Uganda. How old were you at that mm, I think I was about 25 when I left Uganda. And, and what left, led you to leave the country? At that time, there was a lot of uh, killing going on. Uh, Idi Amin had just left Uganda, and we had other dictators like Obote or Kelo. So people were being killed at that time. And uh, my brother was kidnapped, tortured and killed, mm. and other you know, family members. That's when I left, yeah. Um, before we get to where you went, just tell me a little bit about your life in Uganda. What kind of community did you grow up in? Uganda was a beautiful, most beautiful country. It still is. Um, but at that time, uh, there was a lot of joy. You could hear music from the hills across, like in the evening. You'd hear it's all about people just love food. People love music. People love <laughs> food. That's when I think about Uganda. People love to laugh. <laughs> in fact, when I go back even now, I, I remember, you know, I'm reminded how much people love to laugh and have a good time. That's the community I grew up in. And you went from Uganda where? I went to Kenya. And... Were you a refugee there? I became a refugee in Kenya. I had to go through. I lived in a refugee camp in Thika. There was a a refugee camp called Thika. I lived in that refugee camp for a little bit, for about four or five months. And then I became an official refugee in in the whole country. I lived in Nairobi then, but with a refugee permit. And, And how long were you in Kenya? Five years. And were you playing music at that time? I was playing in a band called the African Heritage Band which was the top uh, jazzy kind of jazz band, yeah. Original, we played original music. And what led you to come to the U.S.? I didn't feel safe in Kenya at that point because there were, um, you know, there were all spies coming in from Uganda. So it felt like I needed to get farther away from Uganda at that time because some people, you know, were kidnapped and taken back at that time. So felt like it was better to get as far away from Uganda 
at that time. And, and around what year was that? That was 1987. And was it difficult for you to make your way here? Um, not that difficult then. Um, I, w- I just came as a, you know, I came as a visitor and I put in my application that I don't feel safe to go back. And so what status were you granted? Um, I, ha- I was given a green card. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then later on, I, I married an American uh, wife and, uh-huh. and uh, became officially uh, became an American citizen. So where, where did you first live when you came to the U.S.? The first few months I lived in New York City and I didn't feel safe in New York City either. It just felt weird because for the first time uh, I, I lived in a place where you couldn't just lean on a car and just feel comfortable talking to people with that. So I need, and people didn't make eye contact. So I needed to move to a place where it, I felt like I was back in the village, and that's when I moved upstate New York in, uh-huh. in a little town called Ethica, New York. Oh, you went to Ithaca? I went to Ithaca, yes. Oh, yeah, and a very uh, culturally, a place with a lot of wonderful culture. Totally. Um, yeah, you just have to pretend you're a vegetarian to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk about um, the music you were playing then and, and move now toward the, the most recent project that, you've, that you're bringing to Connecticut. The music I was playing when? Like a and, well, when you were in Ithaca. So did, did you start working as a musician at that point? Yes. Um, because I didn't have a band, um, I, when I lived in Ithaca, for the first few um, months... I was by myself without a band, so I started uh, playing music where I, I played almost everything or I sang everything. I could play drums, and record it, and um, I'd play the kalimba, and I'd play the flute, uh, just you know, overdubbing everything and doing everything myself. And that actually, I still do a lot of that same kind of style of music when I don't have my band with me. Now, now let's talk about um, the the project that you're bringing to Connecticut mm-hmm. this weekend. Um, it's it's called the story of Mutoto. Um, mm-hmm. How did this project come about? So what happened? Um, it goes back to growing up in Uganda, where uh, we lived right next to a big forest. My grandfather had a house right next to a big forest, and every day you'd hear these amazing sounds coming out from the forest, sounds of monkeys, sounds of birds. <laughs> and um, when Idi Amin came to power, the birds stopped singing because of the shooting. And, um, and then later on, when I became a refugee in Kenya, my dream was to, yeah, one day I'll go back and see this thick forest that I used to go play and I used mm-hmm. to hear sounds from. And then when I went back to Uganda, when things changed in Uganda, I went back to the same place and the forest had been cut away and there were houses as far as you could see. So I asked somebody, uh, you know, I asked people there, where can I go still see a forest in Uganda? So they sent me to this place called Windy, Impenetrable Forest, which is western part of Uganda. And there they have mountain gorillas. And uh, just the forest was beautiful and every, the birds were there and everything. But there was a baby mountain gorilla who I named Mutoto. And let's, I'm going to yeah. jump in here for a moment because you've written a song, a beautiful song called yes. Mutoto. Yeah. It was on your 2010 album, My Music World. And let's listen for a moment. Okay. Oh, 
It's just, it's just beautiful. So tell us a little bit about Mutoto. So Mutoto was this baby mountain gorilla. The rest of the family was taking a nap. And Mutoto seemed to really want to talk to me or talk to us. And he kept on coming towards <laughs> us and the mother would wake up and pull him back. And, and I, you know, in my mind, I was like, I wonder if he was to tell us a story. What does he want to tell us? And so that's, where, that's what started this project. So when I came back, my wife and I sat down and we started imagining what Mutoto was trying to say, uh, which is my forest is being cut down. My parents don't want to be afraid for me. They, you know, trees are being cut down and we feel endangered and everything like that because they're endangered. They're, you know, at that time, there were only 700 in the whole world. Now they've increased a little bit. They're about uh, 1,068. So that's actually positive news. But... Uh, so I felt like I needed to kind of write and this play and uh, educate young people, the young ones, how important it is to you know preserve and cons- you know conserve conserve all the, the you know our natural resources and. And and my understanding is that this presentation is a multimedia experience. Mm-hmm. H- how do you, how do you convey that story? So the way I convey the story, I'm speaking in the voice of Mutoto the baby mountain gorilla, but I'm also showing images. I'm a photographer, so I took tons of pictures of Mm. Mototo and his family as they were napping and him playing around and, um, you know, and also his uncle who kept on watching to make sure nobody touched Mototo. So that's how it's done. It's like through the images of Mototo behind me and me telling the story through Mototo's voice. What do you think you learned from working on this project? What I've learned as... It's important, actually, that I share this message all over, especially young people. We need to make sure we inspire them to, you know, continue this project, uh, continue, you know, you know, planting trees instead of cutting down trees, especially in Africa. Yeah. Well, um, I, I want to ask you, I know that you'll be playing a concert, actually, after your, your presentation um, you'll also be playing a concert later Saturday evening. Yes. And um, I, I wonder if we could just switch gears for a moment. Mm-hmm. And, and if you could talk a little bit about some of the instruments you play. So um, I, I'll be using, uh, the, there's an instrument called adungu. I'll be playing the kalimbas. I'll be playing okay, so flutes. but let's let's break that down. So mm. um, first the kalimba. Mm-hmm. How would you describe that? The kalimba is like a thumb piano. Um, the key is made out of metal, and I pluck those. Uh, there's a bridge, and that brings the sound out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the udong? Adungu. U- udongu? No, adungu. Adungu. There you go. The adungu, yeah. we have a one, a beautiful one, right here in the studio, and we are going to be uh, treated to some live music in just a moment. You're going to play it for us, but describe the instrument. It looks like a boat, and it has uh, about 12 strings. And it's made out of wood and then tuning pegs. And then the bottom part is a goat skin stretched over like a hollowed out, you know, piece of wood. And is it the kind of instrument that's often played in groups? Yes. Sometimes it's played in groups of, uh, you know, 10 instruments, big sizes, small sizes, like an orchestra of them. They sound amazing. Um, and um, it's played mostly in northern part of Uganda. And are they hand-built? 
definitely hand-built. All the instruments in Uganda are Mm -hmm. Mm hand-built. So I'm going to ask you to play live for us, but before you do that, you might want to move over to your instrument. Um, I want to tell listeners not to go away because still ahead this hour, we're going to be previewing Cine Studios' 50th anniversary celebration. Two founders of the beloved Art House Cinema will be here with stories about their decades of presenting great independent, classic, foreign, and cutting-edge films here in Hartford. Um, And if you have a story or memory to share about Cine Studio, join us at 860-720-9677-888-720 WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Samite Mulongo is an... Samito, Samite Mulondo? Mulondo. Mulondo. There you go. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Samite Mulondo is an internationally acclaimed, uh, acclaimed musician and humanitarian. He's a native of Uganda, and he'll be presenting a multimedia performance, The Story of Mutoto, at the University of St. Joseph this Saturday. For more info on that, check out our website at wnpr.org slash where we live. Samite, thanks so much for coming in, and we'd love to hear you play. Thank you. Good morning. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Diane Orson, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining me now in the studio are James Hanley and Peter McMorris. They're co-founders of Cine Studio, which is hosting its 50th anniversary celebration this weekend. For decades, Cine Studio has been the place to see great independent, classic, foreign, and cutting-edge films in Hartford in its 1930s-style movie house. James Hanley and Peter McMorris, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And you can join the conversation if you're listening, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Do you have a special memory to share about Cine Studio? We would love to hear from you. Well, 50 years. Let's go back in time. <laughs> let's start by uh, talking about the early days. How, how did the two of you meet and discover a shared passion for film? Well, I think um, we were um, – first of all, we were both involved with the Film Society at Trinity. We are both, I think, interested in film and um, – So you're talking about Trinity College. So you met in college. Yes, at Trinity, yes. And um, 
it also turned out amazingly that uh, we had both spent some of our time growing up in London, just one town away from each other. We didn't know each oh. other. And uh, we had similar interests going to movies. And uh, so we had a sort of uh, a shared background. So it was natural that we became friends and uh, uh, we got involved with the film society and Really, um, that was the beginning just before Cine Studio. So, so where did the idea for Cine Studio come from? Well, James uh, worked in, in movies in England. Um, the idea, I guess, came from the space. Um, we discovered that there was an auditorium on campus which looked like a movie theater, but it wasn't used as a movie theater. It was used as a uh, as part of the chemistry department on campus. Um, but it had stopped being used for that because uh, it just didn't uh, suit the 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 uh, department. So, and the acoustics were also very bad. Professors didn't like using it because you could the students couldn't hear you as you were lecturing from the front of the theater. So it was basically abandoned. And we thought it, as it looked like a movie theater, it should be a movie theater. And we were looking for a space to show films on campus. We, um, but were you film majors? No, there was no film there was major. No film major. So really. what were your majors in college? Well, I was doing French and Russian, um, and but spending an awful lot of time demonstrating against the Vietnam War and mm. going down to the Wait, Black Panther trials. What years are we talking about? Um, this was 1969 when we were getting ready for Sunny Studio. We were we found the auditorium in the summer of '69, and uh, so we spent the fall um, uh, actually working on the space, but. Um, there were a lot of things going on at the time that uh, Trinity was in a great uh, period of change. Uh, women had started attending Trinity and it had become a very different community as a result. And uh, a lot of students were involved in political activities. So it was a time of great turmoil. Well, let's uh, step back for a minute then again. So you found this this space, this like sounds like slightly abandoned classroom. Um, how did what did you have to do to turn it into a theater? <laughs> Basically everything. <laughs> yeah. um, we started by removing all the seats. The seats were um, well. Initially, we used the the this, they had wooden seats with little desks that flipped over. Um, we had to replace everything from the. It had no screen. We had to put in a new screen. Carpets, chairs, projectors, wall covering, everything to make this uh, acoustically and visually uh, suitable for a movie theater. And am I right that the, the uh, first films were projected onto a bed sheet? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a famous story, yes. yes. We, we had um, – when we were working – we started showing films in the fall of 1969, though they're not a Sydney studio. We didn't open officially a Sydney studio until February uh, 16th of 1970. But prior to that, uh, we were showing films there and we didn't have a screen. We couldn't afford it. Uh, the screen that was there had been painted 
along with the walls. When they painted the walls of the auditorium, they painted the screen as well. So it wasn't suitable to show movies on. So we actually um, got up on ladders and put a two-by-four frame on the wall, and we had to go to Bradley's, which was down the street, Bradley's department store, <laughs> and we bought sheets, and we stapled them to the uh, two-by-fours. And the funny story further to that was that we had to show a Cinemascope film, a widescreen film <laughs> at one point. We had to rush <laughs> back down there and uh, make the screen, get some more sheets. Oh, that's sheets. too funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so um, how did you – so this, I understand, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, was a, a student film club Yes. at first. How did you move from the idea of a student film club to a professional theater? Well, I, I think that, that we had, I think for both of us, a really exciting moment was when we discovered the auditorium. We also discovered on the plans, because we looked at the plans in the Buildings and Grounds Department, that there was a big projection booth. And, um, with, with oh. two projectors. With two old projectors <laughs> and, and, that were put in in 1935. And why would that room have had a projection booth? Well, the the um, uh, people who designed the chemistry building in association with the company McKim, Mead and White, Stanford White's company, um, were very forward-looking about uh, instruction. And they thought that audiovisual, uh, meaning showing films for academic purposes, would be a, a force hmm. in the future. So they not only put in 35-millimeter projectors, but they also left a big space that for future technologies, hmm. as it happened, uh, chemistry be changed and instead of demonstrating to students, students began to do their own experiments. And so that didn't quite play out the way they expected. And I guess it was not until 1969 that we we both discovered this space. I, I, I can still remember how excited we both were. It was very exciting. Yeah. How convenient. And, and, and we just immediately had this thought. Yeah. I remember the conversation where we thought, well, why couldn't why we show not? films yeah. every night, you know, and like be open to everybody who wanted to see films and really do it at a high standard technically. We had – you know, the, the the idea, I can't convey how exciting it was about the 35 millimeter projectors because we'd been showing in 16 millimeter, the smaller well, gauge. Let's just, for those of us who are not experts or, or film buffs, can you explain a little bit about why this matters? Talk talk in the most basic terms about why this is such an ex, was such an exciting find for you. Well, it meant that this space was set up for a professional theater. Mm. Um, as James said, it, if you went to high school and college then, you only saw films on 16 millimeter. We could show films now th that were on a professional level that you would hmm. see in a regular movie theater. And these projectors allowed us to do that. Although when we discovered them, they were they couldn't be used. They were frozen. They hadn't been used for years. So it meant we had to strip them down, clean them, reassemble them to get them working again. Uh, let me just uh, t 
tell listeners who may be just joining us what we're doing today. Um, uh, This is Where We Live. I'm Diane Orson. In today for Lucy Nalpathanchel, my guests are James Hanley and Peter McMorris. They're co-founders of Cine Studio, which is hosting its 50th anniversary celebration this weekend. For decades, Cine Studio has been the place to see great, independent, classic, foreign, and cutting-edge films in Hartford. You can join our conversation. If you have a memory to share about an experience at Cine Studio or a question for our guests, the number is 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So let's go back now to that first double feature that you screened. Um, first of all, how, how big a challenge was it to get the film distributors to allow you to screen films? Well, at first, nobody wanted to talk to us. I mean, we were nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, they, We were coming out of nowhere, and um, we were sort of like, you know, I guess they, from their point of view, sort of scruffy college students right? who were just interested in movies. And um, one particular person um, uh, came, uh, agreed to come down from Boston, a representative from United Artists, his name was Craig Grand, and he um, was the one person who agreed to talk to us. And we took it. We had seven founders originally, and we we all met and took him out to lunch at uh, what was then Friendly's Restaurant on the corner of <laughs> Vernon and Broad Street. And uh, we bought him lunch <laughs> and talked about movies. And then we finally came to the leading question. Um, we wanted to show a double feature of Alice's Restaurant and Yellow Submarine. And nobody had ever done this any before. And uh, so this it was customary to show double features. But that particular double feature with two new films, they, they, oh. they, nobody had done it. So... Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. Meaning, generally, double films would have the main film and then something like a like an opening act, sort of like that. Only it wasn't uh, in the case of like Alice's Restaurant and Yellow Submarine. Those both had at the time a sort of equal. Uh, right, know, those were two yeah, major films. Major two major films, films. Yeah. and so. Um, it would mean sort of crossing a line for them because they, they, they basically have to split the proceeds of ticket sales between two producers. And uh-huh. uh, so they have to somewhat – the distributor, this distributor representative, um, to cut the long story short, we basically asked him, so how much will it cost uh, for us to get the films? And he said $500, which was a pretty – amazing large sum at the time. And uh, our faculty advisor with the Film Society, Lawrence Stiers, who is one of the co-founders, he's retired now, um, he put up the money to do this. And so we actually secured that double feature. And that's what we opened with. It did very well. And Let's get in the mood. (laughs) (laughs) Once, once upon a time, or maybe twice, there was an unearthly paradise called Pepperland. Of course, from Yellow Submarine. Uh, can you describe your reactions as that first film started playing the first time? It was, I remember the, we were all still working downstairs. And when the picture came on the screen, Everybody stopped, and it went dead silent. I think everybody was in awe 
<laughs> the first time we saw that picture on the screen. Yeah, it was so exciting. I mean, I, it, it was like the, the transformation from amateur movie showings to a professional right. standard with a brilliant picture and sound. And it was thrilling beyond words. And I think that, that our audience discovered that too. It was something really special. We have a caller on the line, um, Meg from Portland. Let's see if I can make this work. Meg from Portland, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Hi, you're on Where We Live. Well, thank you. Um, I just wanted to comment. I, I'm thrilled that Cine Studio has lasted 50 years. I just want to say to both of the men, um, I was there. I think I was in the uh, the first uh, showing of a video or a film uh, with uh, many of the students. I was uh, attending Hartford College for Women wow. and had gone over to the campus to help Actually, Bill Bartman and David Chan and do some of their um, uh, their productions, Marat Saad and uh, Man for All Seasons, and a lot of other programs. I think the class of '69 at Trinity was uh, truly unique in that they took charge of their education um, and were were a presence on the campus that uh, really um, hasn't been seen again since. I don't think. And uh, I want to applaud you for the 50 years that uh, Cine Studio has uh, continued. Um, it was an exciting time, and there was a lot of protesting. Um, Professor Gardner was out on the uh, on the quad, camped yeah, out with a lot that's of students right. with him. Yeah. So, wow! Uh, yeah, Eric Endersby and Bill Bartman and David Channon. Yeah, uh, yes. they were wow. many, many. Yep, uh, yep. I did the costume. So, <laughs> wow, that's an amazing story. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you, thank you so much for calling in. That's wonderful. Oh. Um, let's let's jump on that for a minute. Oh, so that period, late '60s, early '70s, was a tumultuous time, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier. Um, a critical time on Trinity's campus. I understand this had historically been a kind of upper class preppy, all-male school, um, but there was a sense of change, and I wonder how that played into what you did, the choices you made. Oh, that was absolutely an yeah. integral part of what was happening with Talk our film it. choices. I mean, we were interested in film like we, we wanted to show the Italian neorealists and, you know, uh, Vittorio De Sica and Fellini and the new uh, interesting American films that we, that we had such broad interests. And um, I think that it was a voyage of discovery about the world as well as being able to bring it to other people and also it it was so dramatically connected with the state of the world at the time um, and the change that was happening. Um, I mean, lots of people coming from different backgrounds. There were people of color you know, coming on campus in large numbers and uh, women were part of the community. It was a very uh, important time for people to start to talk and, and, and they were seeing films. So many films we showed were so stimulating and so exciting. You couldn't stop talking about them. It was quite extraordinary. Peter, you want to? Yeah, I, th I think that uh, in a way we kind of got away with this because there was so much else going on. I think the main thing that students were, uh, were doing at the time was uh, protesting the war. Mm. There was a uh, constant um, demonstrations going on. They were actually buildings were being taken over. So we were, we were like in the background to all this. So we were working in a college space. We were drastically changing a college space and we didn't ask permission. 
So <laughs> nobody was really looking at us. So by the time we started, that's, it was a little too late to stop us. Well, that's interesting. And, and, and I, I think also the experience of watching a film, you were able to um, probably attract not only just students, but people from the surrounding communities oh, yes. and, yeah. and, 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 and have it become a space where people who might not ordinarily have interacted come to share this Absolutely. mutual experience of, of witnessing a film. Well, pe- people – right from the beginning, people drove long distances to come to Sydney Studio. I mean the word spread very rapidly and um, I, it, it, it's very interesting looking back on it now. I mean we were very focused on film but many of these people were active politically. They were people who were interested in what was happening um, in the world and we had so many things that were sort of linked. One of our founders, as a matter of fact, started a newspaper called the Sun's Eye Chronicle. Um, his name was Ted Kroll, uh, which was specifically talking about social issues and uh, protesting the Vietnam War. And uh, we had the only independent printing machine on campus. We were printing our schedule for the films and that became the place where that newspaper was printed, which is like, you know, it's that sort of direct linkage that was taking place in in an incredibly exciting time. You know, uh, you mentioned that neither of you had been film majors when you first (laughs) went to school. And so, you know, you're still running Cine Studio today. I mean, when you... Did you ever imagine when you went to college that this would be the career you, career path that you'd follow? No. No, absolutely <laughs> not. There is no film – there was no film major at, at Trinity College. Um, and basically, it's it, – there is no full major in, today. But, um, it, yeah, it's hard to imagine that 50 years later we're still – we're still running this theater. But it's it's been – Every year has been different. I can say that. Every year we've learned something new and we've, we've, we've adjusted, I think, very well to a changing mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. Um, am I correct that for like the first 10 years or so, you weren't paid? No, we weren't paid. No, we did no. it as volunteers. Volunteers. We, we, we um, I think both of us, uh, we had jobs outside, of course. You know, we earned money. But I think that what is really remarkable about how this creeps up to being a lifetime of dedication is that we both were, were so uh, wedded to what we were doing and having such fun doing it that it wasn't something you thought of as a career. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I never – thought that way. And it was something that was constantly, this constant change that was happening was so stimulating, constantly meeting new people. And the incredible thing is now that 50 years later, the structure of Sydney Studio as kind of a cooperative of people who love film, meaning all the 50, 60 volunteers who work at any given time, it's something that's a community that functions. And it's largely modeled on what it was in 1970. Well, this is Connecticut Public Radio. If you're just joining us, this is where we live. I'm Diane Orson in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guests are James Hanley and Peter McMorris, co-founders of Cine Studio. It's hosting its 50th anniversary celebration this weekend. Cine Studio has been the place to see great independent films, all kinds of films actually, here in Hartford. Um, You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter 
at where we live. Uh, We are going to take a short break. Please don't go away. We'll be back soon. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Diane Orson, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guests are James Hanley and Peter McMorris, co-founders of Cine Studio, which is hosting its 50th anniversary celebration this weekend. For decades, Cine Studio's 1930s-style theater has been the place to see great independent classic and foreign films in Hartford. We are sharing memories and history, and we have a caller on the line, Alex from West Hartford, you're on Where We Live. Uh, hello. Hi. Hi, my name is Alex, and um, I have a, I, first of all, I want to thank both, the, both of your guests for uh, supporting and keeping uh, this wonderful theater going on all these years. Um, I have a memory, a wonderful memory of Cine Studio that, that sort of jumps between the 60s and 90s, the period you were talking about a, a short time ago. While my wife and I were not uh, at Trinity, nor were we in, in Cambridge, if uh, people remember back then in the 60s, the wonderful movie Casablanca um, got a new life starting, I think, oh, at the yes. Rattle Theater in, in Cambridge. Yeah. And where we were in college, they kept showing it every year. And, and my wife and I, to be, at the time we were dating, uh, that was our movie, along with a, uh, one of the songs you can imagine. And um, my son and daughter then uh, attended Trinity in the mid-late 90s. My son and I'm sorry, my son and daughter-in-law to be were dating at Trinity at the time, <laughs> and my my son calls me up one day and says, "Dad, would you like you and Mom like to go to a movie with us at at, at Cine Studio?" And we had been going to Cine Studio, so we said, "Sure, we'll go with you." We didn't know exactly what it was until we got there, and it was Casablanca, <laughs> and it was on the full screen, and I have to say we hadn't really seen it on a full screen in years. We sat there with them. My son had always kidded us about it and said, you know, it's an old movie, you're old timers and all that kind of stuff, and it's really even before the 60s, and they absolutely fell in love with it. Uh-huh. And um, and I don't think it had anything to do with their eventually getting married. <laughs> so I want to thank you both for that. Uh, and we, we, we hold this memory very fondly with uh, my wife and myself and, and my son and, and and daughter-in-law, and maybe we will be able to introduce our teenage grandchildren to that. <laughs> well, thank you for such a lovely story. Wow, mm-hmm. that's really amazing. That was great, Alex. Thanks for calling in. It's interesting about uh, you know Casablanca is a film that um, I mean when you've run for fifty years and you've shown it probably fifty times, it, but it's still you walk past it and you get drawn in. It's a very mm-hmm. special experience for so many people. So I know you have some wonderful stories in the few minutes we've got left. I wanted to share some of you, but share some of them. Um, here's one audio clip to start things off. Hello, Radford Police Station. Good evening, it's Miss Weathers at Woodmere Health Farm. Hello. Look, I'm frankly sorry to bother you, but something rather odd has just happened. But it's probably nothing at all, but you never know. Well, 
A young man rang the bell asking if he used the telephone. He said there'd been some kind of accident. Well, the thing that caught my attention was what he said. The words he used sounded very like what was quoted in the papers this morning in connection with the writer and his wife who were assaulted last night. That, of course, is from Stanley Kubrick's classic, A Clockwork Orange. I wonder if you could tell us about the time early on when you screened A Clockwork Orange. Well, we had um, <clears throat> we had booked A Clockwork Orange with Warner Brothers, and um, it was a uh, much-anticipated film for us and for our audience because people knew that we would show it at the high standard that the director, Stanley Kubrick, would have expected um, with uh, a really, really good quality presentation. And uh, we were terribly disappointed a couple of days before we had a uh, call from Warner Brothers saying that another theater locally was going to play it instead of us. And uh, so we couldn't play it. So I happened through uh, a, an earlier employment in my life, I ha- happened to have Stanley Kubrick's phone number, mm. his home phone number. <laughs> And he happened to be a person who actually answered his phone. I know that's hard to believe these days, but he answered his phone. And we had a 20-minute conversation, which was just amazing. I mean, he was really thrilled to hear how we cared about the film. And he got the story to to the chase. Um, He apparently called the CEO of Warner Brothers in California. And he was probably the only film director at the time who had that kind of clout and uh, said that it was really important to him that uh, we show that we be allowed to show the film. We got a call the next morning from the distributor in Boston who said, I don't know what you did, but you've got the film. And so we played it to adoring crowds. Um, we hadn't finished fill- installing our seats at the time. So we told people, you know, when we sold out the seats, we said, well, we, 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 you can sit on the floor if you like. We thought people wouldn't want to do that, but they did. They did, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we have a recording of it somewhere in the office. <laughs> we yes. haven't been able to find it. Amazing. <laughs> We're hoping to find that soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, clip number two. I'm glad we caught you at home. Could we use your phone? We're both in a bit of a hurry. Right. We'll just say where we are, then go back to the car. To meet you, Dr. We Very don't nice want to be any worried. Well, you got caught with a flat world. How about that? Well, babies, don't you panic. By the light of the night, it'll all seem all right. I'll get you a satanic mechanic. I'm just a sweet transvestite. From transsexual Transylvania. Okay, <laughs> go for it. Well, I, we were the first in Connecticut, and to get that film— What we, film is it? Uh, Rocky Horror, of course. Right, okay. Uh, we had to pay for the print. Um, we were told that uh, it had opened and closed very quickly in New York, I think, and we, we wanted to play it, and the distributor told us that— if we wanted to play it, we had to buy a print. We had, they had to pay for the distributor to, to make a print. So we did, and we brought it here. And uh, I, it's hard to say, but we've shown it many times since. Um, 
But I don't want to take credit for starting the craze, but I, I will say that we were one of the first theaters in the country to, to show that Amazing, film. amazing. We have another caller on the line. Borden from West Hartford. Uh, you're on Where We Live. Uh, hi, Peter and Jim. It's Borden calling. Hi there. Um, I'm, re- <laughs> I'm retired from the history department at Trinity. I wanted to pay tribute to one of the students Named, uh, one of my favorite students, her name is Catherine Brescia. Oh, yes. And yes. The, tragically, she died in an oil yeah. accident not long after graduation. And there is a bench yes. just to the right of the entrance uh, dedicated with her name on it, dedicated to her. And I just wanted to pay her tribute. And next time some of your listeners are going to Cinea Studio, they might stop and take a look. Well, that's a wonderful thing to remind us of, uh, Borden, that, that she, she was an extraordinary member of our staff and member of our community, uh, a real inspiration. Thanks so much, Borden. And Deborah from Colchester, you're on Where We Live. Good morning. I saw The Rabbit Proof Fence years back, which inspired, <laughs> wow. uh, thought, uh, maybe empathetic towards groups that were being messed with like that. And I was able to actually get to Australia and meet some Aboriginal people, which was on my bucket list. And the same as like the Trail of Tears uh, inspired me. And I just thank you for those great movies. Um, Another one, the uh, Bolinsky... um, you know, it was wordless about the um, world. I brought my children there a Baraka. couple of times to see that. Oh, Baraka. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely wonderful. I yeah. look forward to seeing that whenever it comes around every time. Yeah, we show that so every year. I do thank year, you right? for your... Yeah. Yeah, so I do thank you. Well, thank you for calling about that. Uh, you know, it's amazing the ripples that spread out from experience. Like when I was a child, uh, I mean, I was influenced by seeing films. I went to see This is Cinerama when I was seven years old. And um, I, I think that infected me with cinema for the rest of my life. And you think about all the years, the 50 years that all the people who've seen all these films and the, 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 the experience you describe of being inspired to find out more, to learn about the world. Um, that's what cinema is really so exciting. That's what makes it so exciting to me. Deborah, thank you for calling. We have only a few minutes left, and I'm going to ask a big question, and you'll have to answer briefly. But we are living in a world where everybody has devices and Netflix and streaming. How? What, what does that mean for Cine Studio today? Well, I, I, w- I would say it, it means that you have to be on your toes in teaching people that you how you experience a film or work of art is intimately connected with the space it's in and the people you're with everything about the experience and many people who say watch a film on a cell phone if you can get them to come in the theater and be in the dark with an enormous picture brilliant sound and really experience it in a different way you can transform the way that they understand art, I think. I agree. It's, it's, it's a unique experience, and uh, I, think, I think it'll continue for a long time. 
Well, I could talk with you all day, uh, but <laughs> James Henley and Peter McMorris, co-founders of Cine Studio. First of all, congratulations oh, on 50 you. years of bringing great films to Hartford. Uh, they have a 50th anniversary celebration this weekend. You tomorrow. Can, yeah, uh, that, right. Saturday, yeah. right. Tomorrow. You can find out more at our website, WNPR.org. Um, I'm Diane Orson. Where We Live is produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Our interns are Maxine Filivon and Khalil Rahman. Check out wnpr.org slash where we live for more about this show. And thanks for listening today.